I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore in the games of Blizzard Entertainment. I'm your host, Joe Perez, one of several lore-focused folks from Blizzard Watch, and I've got my stupendous co-host with me today, Matt Rossi. How are you doing today, Matt? I am doing okay. And in the current state of the world, sometimes that's all we can ask for. Uh, today is going to be a spoilerific episode. Uh, we know that you guys do love that. Uh, but it is something that I believe Matt and I have both got to the end or completion of the Ardenweld uh, campaign storyline, which if you've been keeping up on your renown uh, with your chosen covenant, you should have been getting to the conclusion of your covenant storyline right about the past week or, you know, this weekend. And I've also seen the end of the Kyrian one as well. I have not caught that one yet, but you can absolutely feel free to talk about that uh, in that campaign. But I figured we'd go through a little bit about the Ardenweld campaign, how that storyline sort of unfolds, uh, and get to the end of it and kind of give our thoughts on it. So let's talk about how it opens up. So the very first thing it does is it's the welcome to Ardenweld stuff, right? It's the, hey, you're here, tell us your story, what's going on, um, it does the whole uh, theater thing after you choose your covenant where you explain all of your life story, uh, all the adventures and misadventures you've had up to that point. Uh, and then, you know, basically you're free to join the wild hunt and do everything that you need to do to sort of bring balance to the land. I liked the opening of this, this sort of uh, covenant a lot more than I think some of the other ones, at least from the ones that I've experienced. Um, I thought it was unique. I thought it was interesting. I liked the interaction with the uh, sort of the crowd and how they were reacting like, wait, he killed the whole planet? Why is there a giant sword sticking out of it? Why does that work? Like, there, there's a lot of comedy and a lot of not taking itself seriously while also still conveying well, the seriousness of everything we've There's one thing in that bit that I'm positive is a reference to Avatar The Last Airbender. Okay. There's a part where as you're you're done with everything, you're doing your your play bit to introduce yourself. Uh, you go backstage, and the guy goes, "Whoa, you just went from one war to the other like that? That's rough, friend." And I'm convinced that's a reference to Zuko from Avatar going after uh, Sokka tells him that his girlfriend became yeah. the moon goes. That's rough, buddy. <laughs> that's that's what I I'm convinced that that was a reference to that. Yeah, I, I would not be surprised. Uh, but yeah, so that's sort of the introductory to it. And after that, you are sent to go aid. Uh, I believe it's Tirnaval first, isn't it? Um, honestly, not sure. Uh, I mean, when you do the zone or when you're doing the campaign? The campaign. Honestly, uh, I mostly remember like you, you go you go out and you're like basically trying to figure out what's going on with the Drust. And then you, you get sidetracked with uh, Bonsanmi. And that's kind of like, there's kind of like three tiers to the campaign. Mm -hmm. There's what are the Druss doing? There's what happened to the Night Elves that died at uh, 
tells her so because when you're doing the initial opening thing, when you do, they, they're like, "Hey, wait a minute! If if that happened, where are all these people?" Yeah, because that was definitely something they key on. They key on right, like they they're like, "Wait, that's a whole lot of souls. That's that's a whole population of people. Where did they go?" So yeah, it, so there's, there's that. And then there's uh, finally like you've got the Drust, the Night Elves in Taronda, and the Juan uh, Samdi stuff. That, and it's kind of like those three things are kind of the big the big deal of the campaign. Yeah, so I guess we can go through. I think we can probably start with the Tehran stuff, as I think, and the Asera Tehran Night Elf stuff, and talk about how that sort of unfolded. So part of the the whole thing with Ardenweld is you save a wild seed, and it's a special wild seed, and you petition the queen to wake her up, and that's when the big reveal that it's Ysera. And if you missed all the hints leading up to that point, I'm sorry. Uh, but it shouldn't be that much of a surprise that it is Ysera. Ysera is reborn. Her eyes turn from green to blue as she is now a child of Ardenweld uh, and is sort of signing on to uh, protect Ardenweld, which I always thought was fascinating because the Winter Queen, at one point, when you open up the Queen's Conservatory, you're shown that you can send things back to where they were originally from. And we know that with Ursok and the Loa, and all of those other like wild spirits, they can be sent back to Azeroth. So I was always a little curious about why that option wasn't presented to Ysera. I think it's partially because the, the way that this went, the queen sacrificed her own personal anima. If you see when, when she does the, the thing to bring Ysera back, her some of those leaves growing on her head fall off. But she also does that, or at least it... it I'm, her I, leaves I, don't fall off when she's does with others. She's not using true. her own personal anima. This was her anima. It's her. She's she in order to bring Ysera back, she is binding herself to her. That's the only way she could do it. She didn't have there wasn't enough anima in the reservoir to to res her any other way. Mm. They didn't have another way to save the wild seed. So she gave a, a part of herself. That's why the leaves fall off. That's the whole symbology of it. It's not a question. There's no option to give Ysera. The the Winter Queen preserved her otherwise she'd have died, the wild sea would have withered well i guess the question then is now later on in the campaign if that's something that you know it never becomes an option right and why I would know. it ever become an option it's she's told you this is forever well because you're, you're here now you're bound to this realm I, I i i am this realm and i have bound you to me you're bound here that's it there's so no going back the answer that I would, or the counter answer to that is that you get, at least I got the impression when you talk with, I can't remember the name of the bear, uh, the bear spirit that's there. Elioth? Yeah. Elioth talks about being bound to the realm, but also talking about how they just can never go home because their home doesn't exist anymore. And it made it feel like that would at some point potentially be an option if they so chose it. Now, I, there's nothing in what Elioth says to imply that she's in the same situation as Yasera. There's nothing in anyone. As far as we know, this has never happened before. Okay. Nobody else implies that they've ever had the Winter Queen personally sacrifice. If you watch the, the cinematic when she does it, Jaws hit the floor. The uh, the, the people of, of Ardenweald are stunned to see this. They've never seen it happen before. They're like, <gasps> it's, it's a big deal. Not just that it's a big dragon. I mean, they are also kind of like, whoa, it's a big dragon. But, I mean, I definitely get the sense, and keep in mind that this is something that I'm, I'm interpreting what I saw. There's yeah. nothing in, there's yeah, yeah. no text where the Winter Queen says, and there's no take backsies, but you definitely get the sense that there's no separating Ysera from where she is now. She's effectively been bound there. And she says something to that effect when she sends you to Alex Straza, which is also something interesting we should probably talk about at some point, but... There's a lot to it because the the campaign is so big. Um, there's something like 29 quests in the first part, the for Queen and Country part, which is fo for Queen Grove. Sorry, followed by like the Daughter of the Night Warrior quest chain has got like not got like six. Then there's the boss one, uh, which is the the Juan Samdi bit, which goes I think nine or ten. Mm -hmm. Um, the Night Warriors Curse one, I think, goes for another nine or ten. I'm not sure. I'm just at this point. I'm guessing. Um, I went and looked them, some of them up, but I don't have the thing I looked up. But uh, then there's more Drust stuff and more Drust stuff after that. Um, and then there's more of the Loa stuff. And then there's finally the the final Drust part. So there's a lot to it. This is a very big campaign. They're all yeah. pretty big. Like looking at the Kyrian one is similarly enormous. Uh, trial of Ascension type stuff. There's a lot to the Carrion one as well. And uh, 
in general, I, I feel like some of the stuff is just we're going to have to accept that they didn't get to tell it. They didn't bother to sit down and give you like a, a point by point explanation sure. of everything that's happening. And that, that I mean, I guess the, the idea is. But, that we'll... but here's like to go along with what you were saying, um, we're gonna, let's move it to the discussion of what happened to Razan. We why, can. Why? Well, because I think it's connected. Why did Razan not let Vol. Well, we're just going to flat out tell you guys Razan is in the Maw. When you're there, there are, a se- you are the, there are a series of Loa that have been trapped inside of the Maw, including uh, the Loa of Spiders, who was consumed by her own followers, uh, the Loa of Snakes, who I, I, I forgot what they said happened to, to them, and then Razan, and you are, and as well as Hyreek. Hyreek is in the Maws, uh, and you are sent to save all of them, to find all of them. And then there's another wild god of, uh, uh, what's his name from Legion, is there. Ashamon. Yeah, thank you. Um, Ashamon wasn't actually like a Loa as such. I think Ashamon was a, you know, the, the, they the panther. Ref- they refer to Ashamon as a wild spirit now, like a wild god on that same Yeah, level. a wild god, absolutely. Um, because, because Ashamon was in the, the, the War of the Ancients. Yep. I'm just saying it wasn't specifically one of the Loa that was worshipped by the trolls. Right, but it, it's all tied into the same quest is all I'm saying. Yeah, um, absolutely it is. Uh, but you are able to free all of them except for Razan. Razan is being worked over by essentially what is uh, a high priest of Moizala, uh, one of his most powerful followers that you have to go and disrupt what they're doing. And as you're doing it, you are the way that is presented is that his the anima of Razan is slowly being stripped away from him in a very strange manner, like something that has not been dealt with at all in any other aspect of what we've dealt with so far. And it sort of coincides with what we've been talking about with what happens to souls that go to the Maw and how they're sort of like vivisected and and parted out. And that seems to be what's happening to Razan. And don't forget, Razan was one of the most powerful Loa before he died. Uh, Powerful enough to tell Bwamsamdi, you know, who was the default Loa of death at the time, to go fly a kite. And Bwamsamdi listened. Uh, he was the Loa of Kings and worshipped by all of the Zandalari forever, in able to keep uh, the the kings of the Zandalari lineage alive through the power of him basically just being. Uh, so he's being torn apart when we discover him. And you with Vol'jin save him, quote-unquote, but even he says he's too far gone to be reconstituted, to be reborn, to be saved, and that if he doesn't do something, he will just essentially cease to exist. Uh, very similar to what happened to Ursox Anima being sacrificed. Uh, yeah, but and- I think we're missing here, though. What oh. what he does do is he puts the re- the last remaining bit of his yeah, essence within, within Vol'jin, but the interesting thing here is that when Vol'jin comes to the uh, to Ardenweald, because uh, Bon Sandy's trying to make a deal with the the, the queen, uh, and he gets shut down hard. By the way, she tells him to f off. Uh, pretty, she basically just says, "Be good to depart." She's just like, uh, "I will not." Yeah, I think he gets what he wants out of the deal a little bit, but we can talk about that. He doesn't a get a deal. She straight up tells him, "No." I will explain my my reasoning when you're done. Okay, your reasoning is incorrect. Um, wow, we're having, we're having a feisty one this week. But but the important thing here is. That Vol'jin is now told that he, even though he is a he is the spirit of a mortal being, now that he's bonded with that essence of Razan, he might get to return to the world of the living in the way you were talking about originally. Yeah, because now he's part part of that Loa, but his spirit was also changed but slightly. Beforehand. Again, here here is a situation where somebody is bonded to something else, but he gets to return, or at least the possibility is there. Mm-hmm. And they don't do that for mortals. Like she, she specifically says, you don't do that for mortal beings. Well, like and you, and and, makes and hold on, like the, the, her specific verbiage is not that he'll get to return so much as be reborn. Might be. He might be able to be reborn anew, which that is a very open-ended statement. We talked about how in Ardenweld things change or choose their form. It's entirely possible that something like that may happen to Vol'jin if that option becomes available to him. To circle back to the Bomb thing, the, the reason I, I think that he might have gotten what he wanted out of the whole deal wasn't necessarily that he wanted to strike a deal. I think he just wanted the Loa to go back into her care and to basically be returned to their cycle because he doesn't usher them back. She does. 
that was a lot like the way it was presented to us in Zandalar by Bwam Zamdi was essentially a lie. Um, a lie by omission, but still a lie. And now that he, you know, we went ahead and got these souls, because remember, when he shows up, the Wild Hunt says the Queen has no dealings with you and does not want to deal with you. And he says, I'm not here for the Queen anyway. I'm here for that one. And he points to you, the Mawak. And you go and get these Loa, and you are the one that brings them back to the Queen. And yeah, he does this whole thing about, like, I want to strike a deal. And throughout that whole exchange, it ultimately just winds up that she is going to wind up taking care of those souls and make sure that they're returned to the cycle should they be willing or, or capable. And I think that was his entire goal because he can't pull those Loa back into our land the Winter Queen does. So, I, I like I said, I don't think he was actually looking for a deal. My impression is that's, that's what he ultimately... Does that make sense? It makes sense, but it's the problem is, is that it's saying he wanted her to do the thing she would have done anyway. Yeah, but I also think it was, I think, with everything that happened with, with Moizala up to that point, which, again, part of that campaign is you you learn that Moizala has been stealing wild seeds of Loa's, uh, subverting them, trying to bring back his uh, most akin uh, Loa or use their power to bolster himself uh, or to bolster... By the uh, way, when you forces. talked before, the, the serpent Loa in question, Dambala, yeah. is not one of the Loa you find in the Maw. I thought it was. No, it's Tariq, Razan, and Shadra. That's it. That's it? Okay. Oh, yeah, Dambala is the one you... You you fight. You fight, yeah. Yeah, you fight and basically kill Dambala. I don't know if that means Dambala is permanently dead, but you fight Dambala and defeat Dambala as part of the whole quest line. The, the, inter- the thing of... Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, the interesting yeah. thing for me is that Hyreek was involved in that, especially with everything that happened in Battle for Azeroth with uh, basically Gahoon and how that all shook out with Hyreek siding with Gahoon. Like, it seemed a little weird to me that, that during the campaign, one of our tasks was to go and save him. Like, I didn't quite understand that. Like, why? Especially with everything that happened with the Blood Trolls, with everything that happened with the War with the Zandalar. It, like, maybe as a... Alliance player, it makes more sense because I don't know if you, as an alliance player, are you presented with everything that happened with Hyreek or no? Uh, almost certainly not. I mean, you do see the Hyreek worshippers, but. Okay. So then my question is like, as a Horde player who got to see all the horrible things that Hyreek did in service to Cahoon, uh, including turning the Blood Trolls as worshippers of Hyreek into worshippers of Cahoon, why would a Horde player rescue? Yeah, but from what I understood, Hyreek wasn't in control of what he did he Hyreek was corrupted by Gahoon. so if Gahoon corrupts you that doesn't mean that your uncorrupted self would be something you don't want to have yeah maybe so i don't know maybe it just it was i thought it was an interesting thing as far as that goes uh but yeah so go ahead with whatever you were going to say because i think oh i have no idea at this point <laughs> but yeah and I, that, that's why i don't like you know one of the reasons i try to just spit stuff out as fast as possible if i get interrupted <laughs> i forget what i'm saying Sorry. Uh, but yeah, and I, I thought it was a fascinating journey through that particular part of the campaign because I've been curious about a lot of that stuff since Battle for Azeroth sitting on top of the ziggurat with uh, Boam Samdi because there was at one point in time there's that temple outside of the main city and it has all of the lower or had all of the Loa like statues and, and altars to all of them and you got to see images of the ones that were capable of being reborn uh, including the, I can never remember the Tortolan one, Torga, I think it was. Yeah, I think Torga, yeah. Yeah, like you get to see like Torga as a tiny baby, uh, you know, starting its journey back to rebirth. Uh, although we don't encounter Torga in Ardenwell, which I thought was fascinating. Uh, but there, there's just so much cool stuff there to learn. How, like that Loa are actually ferried back by the Winter Queen, not by Bwamsamdi, not by the Loa of Death. Not just the Loa either, for that matter. I mean, the the uh, August Celestials are clearly also mm-hmm. sent back via the the Winter Queen, and there's various other beings. Uh, one of the things I thought was interesting, though, that we haven't really talked about yet, is during part of all this, part of the the whole basis for the campaign is about the Winter Queen's role in the cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. And what we see is that the entirety of what the Drust have been up to has been trying to to basically seize control of the Grove of Awakening. And they pull it off. Yeah. At the end of the campaign, although you stop the one who is 
you know, in in charge of the thing and destroy her before she can do any more harm. When you get there, the portal is open and some of them are going through it. You see them travel through it. The same portal that you see, you know, the one the spirits that you regenerate go through when you've when you've you know used the uh, the Queen's Conservatory. It's the same thing. You see some drust go through it. What does that mean? And I guess are there living drust now? Are drust being reborn on Azeroth? How? Are they just like, you know, people being born on Azeroth who have like a drust inside them? Are they, are the drust physically returned to Azeroth? How does it work? What does it mean? Yeah, we still don't know exactly how that goes either because any of the spirits that we see translate back, especially from the Queen's Conservatory, are still in like that, that starry spirit form as they go through the portal. So after that point, it's sort of like, I don't know what happens. Do they get shoved back into their mortal shell or whatever the case is? But I thought the, the Drust portion of this campaign was fascinating for a lot of reasons. Uh, one, several of the areas that have fallen under Drust control are actually pretty vast. And it's not just talking about like Tyrannoscythe or, or or anything like that. It's just whole swaths of land. I think like one quarter of Ardenwell essentially is just Drust terror. And the number of Night Fae that they have subjugated or corrupted or made to wear the masks, like you are shown several times the sheer number of just how many folks have fallen to it. Like, And I thought that was was really interesting and and curious because I would have expected the dress part of the campaign to be a larger portion of the campaign in that regard. Uh, I mean, they're assaulting uh, the different uh, areas, the different Tirnavals and, and uh, Hibernal Hollows and, and places like that. And all of that stuff leads up to that, that final buildup to when you're going to protect the Grove of Awakening or take it back, really. Uh, there's just a sea of them, a sea of constructs, a sea of brutes, uh, but most of them are made out of uh, the fawn, the, the that particular race that uh, exists in Ardenwell. Silvar? The Silvar, yeah. It's made up mostly of them in masks, charging towards the grove or acting as the ground forces of the army. It's not, you know, drust constructs. It's not, you know, the witches are there in some of the... Uh, bigger, bulkier general types are there, but most of it is they're using Ardenwell's own forces against it. And I thought that was fascinating, especially given the scope of, of what was. Yeah, because it's interestingly, it's an inversion of the ma- magic you saw them using in Battle for Azeroth. It's basically mm-hmm. the same kind of thing where you saw them, you know, converting people in Drusvar into their servants, making them the, the witches and so forth. So it is interesting that they have like the same thing going on in Ardenwear. But when you confront uh, Gorak Zar, and I don't know what relationship Gorak Zar had to Gorak, you know, Gorak Tool or any of the rest of them. But when you confront her, she's already doing it. Like mm-hmm. you know, they've they've got the portal open. Everyone talk you talk to like when you talk to Shandra Thetherman, she's like, I do not wish to to think what could have happened if the Drust had managed to gain control here. I can see there is still work to be done here in Ardenwale, but at least this threat has been driven back. Uh, I mean, I, I'm I'm Alliance, so Taronda. I mean, Shandris and I have a pretty open speech. I know that if you're Horde, she basically just says, "I, you know, I have my misgivings, and I will be watching you." She says she doesn't give you the whole. We have to go find Taronda. Uh, she's just like basically like I don't trust you because you're Horde. It, it changes towards the end, at least. Yeah, well, she still says she doesn't trust you. Like that's the last thing Chandra says is, "I have my misgivings, and I will still be watching you." But at least we can agree on helping this place is her response if you're Horde. If you're Alliance, she's just like, no, we have to go help Taronda. It's different. Uh, I I guess I get why that is, but it's interesting. Uh, but but that whole thing, like the Drust, it doesn't really feel like it's been dealt with to me at all. Yeah, so so I, feel, I feel like there's definitely going to be more. That's that's what I wanted to talk about, at least as far as like the ending of the campaign goes, because that is the end of the, the Night Fae Covenant campaign is going to take back the, the Grove of Awakening. But I thought it was fascinating because... Garrick Czar wasn't what I expected to be there waiting. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't what I expected there to be. Uh, I expected something more with Garrick Toll. I expected something more uh, with his involvement. But he's very light throughout all of this. His, his name is invoked. Uh, it. But it's not, he doesn't make an appearance. He doesn't make an appearance like he did in Battle for Azeroth. Like, we see him, we interact with him, we shove him back through a portal. Why isn't he here? Where is he? Is he still in Thros? So, yeah, it, it's 
it was just felt almost incomplete. So yeah, the the involvement of Garrick Toole is basically non-existent aside from just having his name invoked, which is fascinating. I would have expected him to be way more present, way more involved. Not that the Drust aren't, you know, a thorn in the side of Ardenweld or us as the player, but I would have expected him to pop up in some manner, right? I mean, I don't know. Uh, he might be in the Maw. Uh, I mean, it's, the thing is, is that I don't understand, to, to this day, right now, I don't understand the status of the Drust. We know that they're dead but not dead they're like kind of like their own ver- constructive version of undead and it's they're trying to use uh Ardenweald to get themselves reborn into the circle of you know the, the cycle of life and death and rebirth and i don't know what happens to a drust when you kill them in a dungeon like i don't know what happened to gorak tool when we killed him i know that gorak czar worked with gorak tool you know and you know was one of the drust who supported what he was doing but I don't know what happened to him when we beat him. I don't know where, you know, because he was exiled. He was cast out. He he didn't die. Like all those years ago, he didn't die. He wasn't dead. So I'm not sure what his status was when we killed him. And I guess we've, we've asked this question before, like Thros in general, like, is it a plane of existence or a pocket plane that they're tethered to after what they did that sucks them back? Like, we talked about, like, demons and the Twisting Nether and, and all that stuff over, over the course of years. And there seems to be some shared DNA there, at least a little bit, with uh, the idea of uh, the dr- the Drust. Um, so I don't know if that's something that happens with him. Because when we kill him in the dungeon, there's an open portal behind him. And it's an open portal to Thros. Like, it's that inky darkness uh, that... that you know, we is characterized with all of the, the Drust stuff, but we don't yeah. really have any information regarding that, right? We know that it's somehow related to Druidic stuff. Um, we know that the Drust Druids were big on, you know, the, the balance of life and death, and that that's where the Thorn Speakers came from. That's why the Thorn Speakers broke away, mm-hmm. because the people like Gorak Tool were exploiting it rather than living within the balance of it. Um, and that's... Like there's the whole, uh, you know, the whole origins of like Seth Ewen and that whole bit when she was like trying to like effectively lead a rebellion against it, saying, you know, we shouldn't do this. We, you know, we should try to live in peace with these people. So there's there's a ton of stuff going on uh, that we don't really understand yet in terms of how this is supposed to have worked. Yeah, and and that's the thing is I find myself wondering if Thros is like, is Thros a pocket plane like we thought? Is it some parody of the Ardenweald? where beings like, you know, get trapped and exist because we know that one of the things that the Drust were doing was basically tearing their spirits out of their bodies and placing them in those wood and bone constructs. So the wood bone rock constructs that they're using that we see them using even now, like they're using in when they invade Ardenweald. So yeah. How does their, how is this like a twisted form of their druidic magic? How does that work? Like what's going on? That's why I think there's probably going to be a throws something, a raid, An outdoor zone something. So one of the things I was actually curious about, and this goes back to the idea of them having like this massive corrupting force available to them, is I'm wondering if Thros itself became maybe not necessarily a pocket dimension, but I'm wondering if they subverted something else to their will. Like I'm wondering if where they go or where they're coming from, their invasion point uh, existed beforehand as something else, maybe in the Shadowlands, or maybe adjacent to something else that they took over, because we've seen that they they spread like a virus. Like once they're there, the amount of of influence that they can exert is staggering. And like I don't know if that was just because they happened to hit whether it's an anima drought or if it's just the nature of their magic, but it is incredibly infectious. And like it's just like going back to the, the just the size of their army, the size of the corrupted army uh, of the Sylvan that, that they have. Did they do that to another place? Did they do that to one somewhere else things, to make it their own? One of the things that's argued, at least in game, uh, is that the the Lost Codex did an interview with Alex Afrasiabi, and they mentioned that Thros was uh, some kind of like offshoot of the Emerald Nightmare. I'm not sure how that works. Like, I don't, you know, this, this is just based on a, an interview. It might not be still what they're going to do. Yeah, you know especially I mean? especially because, like, the idea of Thros being the Blighted Lands and, and mm-hmm. like, if that having that moniker, if that plays into it at all. Yeah, I honestly don't know. But 
if you think about it in terms of like the how the the emerald nightmare is a twisted you know version of it's a it's a deformation on the emerald dream it would make sense that if you corrupt it you could use it to get to ardenwheel right it would you know and that's that's something to think about in terms of how their magic works and why it works on the beings in Ardenweald. The, the, you know, we know that the Shadowlands are vulnerable to attack from the Void. Yeah, we've seen it multiple times. And it's, in fact, one of the reasons that supposedly Maldraxxus was created, and it's one of the reasons that they, you know, they have the Kyrian have fought them. So there's... The thing is, is that supposedly Gorak Tull was trapped within the Blighted Lands. Like, that's like the whole bit... The whole thing that we see in... In uh, Drusfar, if you play Alliance, that whole storyline involving the Drust is about Gorktool trying to get out of Thros because he's trapped there. Yeah, that's why he corrupts the Waycrest uh, family line in order to because they're yep. the seat of power of Drusfar. Plus, they're the descendants of the person that like you know killed him in the first place. It's the it's the Salem witch trials sort of trope thing again, which I'm fine with. I think it works. What's really interesting is that the the invasion of Thros. I mean, the invasion of Thros into Ardenweald. Um, and their desire to to use the uh, the you know the, I want to say rebirth I can't remember the name but the Grove of Awakening they want to use the Grove of Awakening to return themselves back to you know to, to basically free themselves from Throes they're still stuck in Throes and that makes me wonder if the reason you don't see Gorak Tull is because he's still stuck in Throes and can't even get out to like go to Ardenweald and the ones that can go to Ardenweald are like you know just the tip of the iceberg. And why is it some of them can? How are they doing it? There's there's still a ton of this we don't know yet. But it's it's interesting to me because it feels like it kind of you've got that storyline and you've got the 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 Buon Samdi storyline with uh Muzala and you know how Muzala goes from we find out three things. One is that Muzala quote unquote made Buon Samdi what he is. Yeah, that he re- he raised him to a lower status. What was he before? Yeah. Was he like Vol'jin? Is that you talked before about how you thought he got all he wanted, and you didn't even mention Vol'jin when you'd said that? And I was like, because I think the Vol'jin thing is way more important than those other Loa so, that you know get into the 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 Queen's hands. That's relatively unimportant compared to the fact that Buonsamdi has replaced Mozala completely. He has yep. overthrown Mozala. He now has Mozala in prison. Essentially, he's using him to find out what's going on with the jailer. He's straight up exploiting his former boss. And now he's got his own kind of Loa in in whatever has happened to Vol'jin. Well, he's, he's, got say- his, he's got himself a full ally now. Well, no, no, he doesn't have an ally. They're not equals. And meanwhile, yeah. Vol'jin, Vol'jin has the power of Razan inside him. Yeah. Which means now, Juan Samdi is stepping on Razan's neck. It's no more is Razan coming along and telling Bon Samdi what to do. Now, the guy who has Razan's power is indebted to Bon Samdi. Well, kind of, except for two things, right? Like, in, in, in here's where I would sort of diverge from that. One, Bon Samdi never states that he's the one that sent Vol'jin back. We still actually don't know. Like, that's not resolved yet. We still don't know what brought Vol'jin I'm not talking back. About him. That's not what I'm talking about in the slightest. I, I, I understand that. Hold on, I'm getting there. Um, but it wasn't Buam Samdi that gave Razan's power to Vol'jin. Like, Razan. But it doesn't matter that he's not the one who did it. He's the one that put Vol'jin in the place to do it. Because without Muzala, they would never have known to go to the mall in the first place. It's I'm not saying that that Vol'jin actually should owe Buon Samdi anything. I'm saying Buon Samdi has played it so that it looks like Vol'jin owes him. Vol'jin uh, probably assume he owes him. See, and that's that's the part that I'm not sure of because the interactions at the end weren't weren't this whole yeah I owe you one. It's yeah I'm beginning a whole new separate journey. Like Vol'jin, I. He didn't exactly state. Now you you are right that it is definitely Buam Samdi's way here, right? Like that's what he does. He plays uh, the middle position to make sure that he has the best advantage after whatever outcome happens. So if he can try to make Vol'jin feel indebted to him, absolutely right. Uh, he's going to try to. But the question is, will Vol'jin at the end of this feel indebted to him? That's the part that I'm not sure of. Now, the interesting thing is turning that on its side is, is this going to be a potential future problem for Bomb Somni in that regard? Because if Vol'jin 
does basically take over Ferrazan in some manner, is reborn, is made Aloa, goes back to serve his people. It wasn't Bwamsamdi that saved Hyrie. It was Vol'jin, who already has a relationship with Hyrie beforehand. Remember the prophetic visions before the corruption of Gahoon uh, to Hyrie, or at least we assume, or I assume, before the corruption of Hyrie by Gahoon, were given to Vol'jin by Hyrie. That's who he communed with during war crimes, I want to say, or was it the Vol'jin novel? It might have been the Vol'jin. Um, but that's who reached out to him. So is this creating another Razan problem for Bonsamdi in the future that he's trying to avoid or trying to mitigate so that he doesn't have that same relationship? Maybe not necessarily make Vol'jin feel indebted to him, but maybe make Vol'jin feel more inclined to work with him, unlike Razan. Because remember, Razan just wouldn't do anything with Bonsamdi. Zero. Nothing. There was no deals, no anything. Maybe this is an attempt to make him more agreeable, not feel indebted. But like, hey, we fought together, we did this together. I got your, fr- I helped you get your friends out. Uh, you know, I made sure that your soul was safe long enough to. Because like, when you're doing the stuff with Moizala, when there's a whole question which I thought was fascinating, where you're breaking Moizala. This is after the events that happen inside of the other side dungeon. You go back to the Ziggurat. In Battle for Azeroth, you go to Nazmir, you go to Bwamsamdi Ziggurat, which I thought was interesting in and of itself, uh, and you are taking Bwamsamdi's followers to protect them, uh, his priests, which he didn't have before, and now he does, protecting them while you break down Moizala to do the torturing, and one of the last thing that's brought in is Vol'jin as sort of this, hey, you wanted to know what happened to you, here's my friend Vol'jin. And he keeps referring to him throughout all the interactions as friend, 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 not my tool, not my, you know, bargaining point, though, That's I'm sorry, but that's always been the way Bonsamdi presents everything as a nice fair deal between equals. He he always does that. You're basically describing, the entire process you're describing is a way to get people to think they're indebted to you without saying, oh, you owe me one. You never say it. You never tell people that they owe you one unless you absolutely have to. The entire reason that you go to the other side dungeon is because he's tried his usual approach and nobody's biting. So he has to have you go in and forcibly remind them, oh, no, this was a deal. You're going to pay it back now because that's not his style. He doesn't do that. Mm, fair. It doesn't mean that he isn't manipulating Vol'jin. It just means he's manipulating Vol'jin extremely well. Totally fair. 100% fair. And I think uh, the whole thing with Muzala, when you watch the, the Muzala bit, he even like has, you have to shield the Buanzamdi's priests because Muzala is killing them. He's trying to take their animal. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's killing them. He's straight up killing them and you have to protect them to prevent him from doing so, which is how you break him down. Um, there's a lot to this. Like the, I keep looking at the elements we've got in play here. We've got um, the Taronda bit in Torghast, and the possible discovery of a way to save her, but we don't have her at the end to make use of it. Yeah. I was I was actually going to comment on that. Like, of there's of the three major storylines, the Loa one, the Bwamsamdi one, seems to be the only one that's buttoned up tight, or at least close enough. The other I two No, I disagree. That is not even close to buttoned up tight. Compared to the other two? Mm, yeah. Uh, here's the thing. Sure, Mazal is dealt with, but you just got done pointing out that we don't know how Vol'jin got back in the first place. What's going on with the Loa? What What is the current state of the Loa? Um, and for that matter, all the Wild Gods. Yeah, because now we know that there's a possibility of reconstruction to a certain point, at least I think there is, that we might wind up exploring in the future. I don't know if that'll work or how that'll work, but I think that's going to be a topic that's probably going to be brought up as we start rescuing more things from the Maw. Especially now that we know that we can rip um, Loa out of there. And the Razan thing is particularly fascinating to me, not in just context of the Maw, but in context back to just Ardenwell as a whole and back to Ursoc. Because Ursoc's anima, we don't know if it's been fully consumed. We know that it was being used as fuel, but so was Razan. Could Ursoc be tied back to another entity and given a chance at rebirth like Vol'jin and Razan? Is there a way that we might be able to repair some of that? I think that's what I've been thinking about since rescuing Razan is, could we fix some of the other wild gods? Could we fix some of these other ancient spirits in some capacity? Maybe not in their original form, but maybe 
you know I don't what I think Ursoc is going to come back straight up. I think Ursoc's, which is possible, but I'm throwing it out there as as a thing. No, I think I think it weakens their entire establishment of the zone too much if what happened to Ursoc isn't a permanent sacrifice. And for that matter, the main point of view character of that cinematic also dies. So that's interesting to me that Aralon does not make it through this campaign. No, no, he doesn't. I told you guys there are spoilers, so if, if you're a big Aralon fan, you're like, oh my god, what? Yeah, Aralon dies too. Uh, we kill him, technically. We kill him because the Drust disguise him as Gorak Zar, and we kill Gorak Zar, and it turns out to be Aralon the whole time. And really, um, considering that one of the Night Fae is the one who detects this, they probably should have detected it a little earlier, guys. Next time, let me know before I'm bashing the guy's head against the Listen, it's, it's just classic Moonberry. I just I find it fascinating the way that the, the, those things are going, but I think maybe we should take the last uh, 10, 15 minutes of the podcast here to talk about what happens with uh, the night elf side of things. Uh, so so I basically, mean- yeah, um, one of the things that that happens is while doing all of this, uh, you you find out that there was a there were night warriors before. You find the 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 I, I keep wanting to say the ghost because I don't know what else to call it. The spirit of a previous night warrior. And his uh, husband, mate. Um, I don't remember the names off the top of my head, which is dumb because I should. I was just doing this. Uh, but not regardless, the uh, two of them are living out uh, in in Ardenweald. They're, they've they've chosen a life there. Yeah, they're stags, and, right? Yeah. Well, no, uh, one of them's a unicorn. One's a unicorn. That's right. One of them's a unicorn. One of them's a stag. Uh, what is it? Theranax and uh, Katarin? I think so. I mean, I, like I said, I don't remember their names. It's, you know, Theranax. Yeah, Theranax and his, yeah, Kadarin. Yeah, Theranax and, Theranax and Kadarin. Yep. I believe Kadarin is the stag and Theranax is the unicorn. Yep. But regardless, you you, you find out that there's, the, you know, Theranax tr- became the night warrior on his planet to stop a, an old god and succeeded, but the power tore him apart. And when they found out that that was happening, Kadarin attempted to su- siphon some of the Night Warrior curse off of him and onto himself, thus sharing the power out, and that way neither of them would be torn apart. However, that wasn't sufficiently split, and they were instead both torn apart. Mm-hmm. Rather than just one of them dying, they both died. Which Theranax blamed himself and didn't want to talk about the Night Warrior anymore after that. Um but eventually, you you figure it out. Uh, Theonax is uh, Kadarin is cursed uh, by one of the the. I don't know if they're working for the Drust or if they're working for Mozala, the little Spriggan guys. I I don't know which evil force they're working for. But uh, regardless, they're working for somebody, and they put a curse on him. So you have to help him, you know, decurse his his husband. And when you do that, he finally reveals this is the secret of the the Night Warrior that we tried to do this and it, and it might have worked, but they're it wasn't split them off enough people. And that's part of the reason it's, it feels like the storyline is heading towards. That's the reason why we're getting all these night elf souls out of, uh, Torghast. I mean, obviously we're getting them out of Torghast because they shouldn't be there. Yeah. It's the right but, thing to do one way or another, but it also feels like to a certain degree, they're going the, the ultimate aim is possibly to shed, to spread the night warrior out among a couple hundred or a couple thousand spirits rather than just have it be two. Yeah. So, I've been wondering about that though, because like, can it be done with the spirits, or does it need to be living beings? Because Tron's not dead, not yet, and that—that's something that Kadarin and Theranax tried to do while they were still alive. So I've been wondering if this is going to be one of those things where we get a whole new breed of night elf. Like, is this going to be a thing where we figure out how to do it and maybe spread the curse out among the living so that? We just now have more powerful, more uh, night elves that are capable of handling themselves even more so than they already were. Because, or, or you know, maybe a completely different, just a different. Now they'd be like the the vengeance elves or something. I don't know. Um, much like the blood elves and the high elves are basically the same. There's mm-hmm. slight differences, but they weren't. You know, it, it could be similar to that where you now have you know something else. I don't know what you'd call them. I, ironically, I always think it's weird that the nightborn. The name of the Nightborn actually is, you know, Ch- Children of the Night or Children of the Shadow, I think, or something. Whereas the name of the Night Elves, actually, the Calderai, means Children of the Stars, not Children of the Night. I mean, obviously, stars come out at night, but nevertheless, they're, they're not, they could be, you could more accurately call them Star Elves, and it would be closer to what their name actually means. Sure. I don't know if they're going to possibly 
you know, now that the Night Warrior thing, if the Night Warrior thing was spread out to all living Night Elves, would they now truly be the Night Elves? You know, it's just one of those things I think about. It wouldn't necessarily need to, like, do anything. I don't know. I honestly don't know. I mean, if, if ever, you know, I've, I've got the, the Night Warrior cosmetic option is one of the options that you can have now but there are so many cool options that i don't use it anymore so and that was one of the things that got me going down this path too is like i know that it's an art asset but we've seen in the past that not every art asset is without some form of later purpose and it seemed like giving you the ability to become the night warrior at least in terms of your eyes taking on that that inky darkness that that tarand has it seemed a little bit weird. Like, it was cool. Don't get me wrong. But it didn't make sense story-wise. There's only one Night Warrior, right? Well, until we got to this point, we started realizing that there could potentially be multiple. And that's when I started thinking, like, maybe that's going to be a hook that we explore, which is spreading out that power among all of the Night Elves that are still in existence who no longer have a home, uh, who are, you know, trying to find some way to... Uh, get back on their feet. They're in an area where we talked about, they, they basically have moved to Hygel at this point, right? Um, where they have the high ground, they have an open door to the elemental plane of fire still in their backyard, that everything else, that, else that's been happening, plus they seem to be pulling a little bit away from the Alliance. Could we see the Night Elves, you know, embrace this power and become more of a voice that has to be listened to because they have this power now. Is this something that was sort of like spoilered through that new customization instead of, uh, you know, just being a neat cosmetic thing. So I, I, I've been thinking about that a lot. Like, I'm not sure how I feel about that. I think it would be kind of okay, but I'm guessing my question to you is like, if that's something that would happen, how would you feel about it? You're, you're very tied, uh, to night elves. I feel, so I feel like your opinion here matters a lot to me. I don't know because I don't know how they're going to do it. I mean, that's one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is, will it just, would they literally just say that every night elf has to take part in it? And now from now on, we're all like that. I don't want them to do that. Like, I don't feel like I don't want that choice taken away from my character. Uh, I could see that definitely could see them establishing that like, you know, a sect of night elves became like night warriors permanently. And that that's like, you know, the sentinels and the, the, the wardens. Now we'd have night warriors as a sect of night elves that you, you need to basically take part in the ritual and absorb part of that power into yourself to be a part of. And that would be great. I just don't like the idea of every single night elf is now a black guy. You know, we sure. just got the options. And plus as a story thing, I feel like not every night elf should be consumed by vengeance. Yeah. And maybe, not maybe it becomes a choice thing, right? Like maybe that's the story. The idea of a new group of night elves who are now dedicated to vengeance and who are, you know, possibly permanently unforgiving like they're never gonna this they will be a roadblock to peace going forward for the rest of you know time because they live for thousands of years and they're never gonna stop hating the horde ever they'll never stop then nothing the horde can do can make up for it if they got other hands on thrall they would execute him yeah. and they'll they're gonna they're never gonna forgive that would be an interesting case of consequences for the horde's continuous warmongering like so far in WoW's story, not in Warcraft's story, but in WoW's story, the Horde keeps going on like violence benders. Like they just, you know, every so often a new Warchief comes along and they just go nuts and start, you know, they, they did it with Garrosh, they did it with Sylvanas. And it's, you know, I, I this was even commented on by, of all people, Sarfang. Like, you know, th th this keeps, keeps happening. They keep repeating the same mistakes. And there's never any real consequences to the Horde for it. It's always everybody else who pays the price. The Horde never does. Mm -hmm. The Horde absolutely didn't pay the price for blowing up Theramore. Nope. There was no consequences to the Horde for that. The Horde, you know, sure, okay, the invasion of, of Orgrimmar, which ended with the Horde fully in control of Orgrimmar and Vol'jin on the throne. It's like, okay, Garrosh paid the price, but, you know, the Horde didn't as an organization. Didn't lose anything. Then you, you look at the beginning of Battle for Azeroth, the Horde marches its way right through all of the Night Elf lands, burns Teldrassil, and loses nothing. They, they get pushed out of Teldrassil. They get pushed out of Darkshore. That's, that's the big consequence to the Horde. They don't get to hold on to the stuff they took. That's, that's not a consequence thematically. If the, ultimately this ended up in a situation where the Night Elves were a permanently implacable 
opponent to the horde, it would make narrative sense. And if the night warrior is the way you do it, like, and then maybe the, the, the you've got a storyline where the Alliance has to deal with the fact that these guys are just straight up never going to go along. Yeah. And so how are we going to have peace if these people won't go along? Like they, they won't, they will not accept the closest they'll get to accepting is we won't attack them right now. Like, all right. We won't attack them right now. We are not taking attacking them in the future off the menu. That'll never happen. And that, that would be interesting from an Alliance standpoint. And it would also be interesting from a Horde standpoint, because then the Horde have to decide who they want to be, whether or not the other guy, the other side likes them. Yeah. You know, it, and there's good story in that. The idea that the Horde just decides it doesn't matter if they ever forgive us. We, we have to decide who we want to be. We have to decide what we want to do. And do you make, do you try to make amends anyway, even though the, the other, the person you injured is absolutely not interested in hearing from you. Like there's, there's stuff to be done with it. I don't, but I don't want to see like all night elves are now the night warrior. That, that would not be something I'd like, but I would like something along the lines of a couple thousand of the, the, the night elves decide to join this new group and become night warriors. And now you've got these night warriors who are protecting night elf territory and they're protecting it. And- seriously see and i think i think it's an interesting an interesting potential evolution for them as well because you've had wardens and sentinels for so long but all of these traditional lands all of this traditional structure that the night elves have had for you know however long at this point is gone now and maybe you don't need wardens anymore maybe you actually don't need sentinels anymore maybe instead you need night warriors now and that sort of evolves like i could see like the more militaristic more protective minded night elves stepping up and saying i will take on this burden so that i can continue to protect my people and continue to right wrongs done against us 100% I would be on board with that. I think I think that you're right. I think it would be good story. I think it would be uh, a fascinating story for both sides as a result of it. Uh, internal strife with the Alliance, internal reckoning within the Alliance. Uh, because don't forget, like they also have to contend with the fact that the Alliance sort of abandoned them for a good chunk of time because there were other more important things, and I'm making air quotes with my fingers here, to deal with. Um the horde has to pay for what it does. And I'm saying this as a horde player, uh, the horde's done some really awful, awful things. There needs to be a reckoning. And like, you're right. There has to be some form of, I'm not not even saying like the horde has to be punished. I'm saying that narratively there need to be consequences. Consequences doesn't mean, you know, someone comes along and smacks you for being bad. Exactly. This thing happened, and therefore, since this thing happened and it was consequential, that means that things that follow from it happen. Things have to like, change, right? Like, and, and I think it would give, like you said, has to reflect, it, the story has to reflect yeah. what we've seen. If Taronda does become like some kind of, you know, messianic figure sharing the power of the Night Warrior with her people, and you create this new group uh, within the Night Elves who are Night Warriors, um, there's a storyline consequence to this. That, that, you know, as you talked about, some people would step up and say, I will take on this burden to keep protecting my people. But what about the people who just want to protect their people? Mm-hmm. They don't want to be part of this militant organ. They're not vengeful. They just want to protect their people. They don't have a place in this new order. Do they accept that their time is done? But I think or it falls. Do they, do they push against it? Do you get story out of that and i think you get some story out of that though too because i think like there's already been some form of uh, some of that established with the history of like the sentinels versus the wardens right like and sort of like the roles that they filled and there's nothing that says that they have to and like you said like finding that balance point i think would be very very interesting like is it two opposing forces grading against each other internally or is it yes they'll go do that thing we'll focus on this and we'll keep doing this thing like there's a there's also there's also to though, keep in mind though we're talking about this but one of the things we're seeing from the campaign is that there's a lot of interconnection between forces that don't normally seem interconnected i mean whether it's wild gods or loa or ancient guardians or whatever they're all going through ardenweald yeah the Drust are attacking Ardenweald. And so, in a way, I mean, I we didn't really talk about any of the other campaigns, and we probably won't get to do much. I just do want to mention, though, that I've seen the end of the Kyrian campaign. And the Kyrian campaign 
is also in its own way diverse and has a lot of stuff going on. There's too much to cover in the like four minutes or so we've got. Probably a little bit more because we interrupted twice for me being bad. But there's there's this idea of these forces are interconnected in ways that we don't see when we're alive because their interconnections are on the other side. Mm-hmm. Literally, in some cases, the other side. <laughs> but the, the idea of like the Kyrian being under attack by the Forsworn and even a lot of the Forsworn not knowing that the Mossworn are involved, that, mm-hmm. they, that they effectively that the jailer is working with various higher ups in the Forsworn. Some, some of the Morsworn, the Morsworn are not necessarily the Forsworn and they don't like Uther didn't know. Uther had no idea that they were drawing on the power of the Maw. He's like, that's the power that got us into this mess in the first place. Why would you work with it? Yeah. That's the power that, you know, ripped part of my soul out. Why would I want to be involved with that? That was the whole yeah. reason that I was angsty to begin with. Yeah. He, he turns on Lysonia as soon as he finds out. There's also the fact that for all, like in in both of those campaigns, I only two I've seen. In the end, the like the the higher up figure, the Winter Queen or the the Archon, are both involved in the story. But in in the Arden World one, the Winter Queen is definitely it's like she's much more of an active force. You get the sense that the Archon is never really imperiled, even when the the end of the whole thing is the Lysonia and her followers have managed to clear the path and they're attacking the Archon directly. And they're going to destroy her and. Uh, she had, like literally while you're fighting Lysonia, the Archon is taking out every single one of her followers. It doesn't even look like she's breaking a sweat. She doesn't. At no point do you get the sense that the Archon is in any real danger. And you definitely get the sense that the Archon, at any point, if Lysonia had stopped, the Archon would have been fine. Would have just taken her back. And that to me is fascinating. I want to know more about the Archon and the Archon's history and Bastion as a group. That's why I honestly feel like we've gotten the first read of the expansion was Castle Nathria, which mm-hmm. which really explains Revendreth. And we'll, we'll do a show about Revendreth soon. Oh yeah, because there's a lot to talk about there. But we don't we don't have that for any. You know, we've got two dungeons in Bastion, and they don't explain much about Bastion. No, we have the Spires of Ascension, which, you know, that doesn't really explain anything because it's under assault. And you have Necrotic Wake, which is Necrotic oh, Wake. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, b- both of them are, you know, they're like, if you want to know more about Devos, Spires of Ascension does give you that at least. But there's just, there's a lot that I, I feel like it would not surprise me if every single zone gets a raid. And I'd be okay with that, or at least like some advancement of the story, because it, it, it sort of to, to so like, we just finished the campaign for this patch. You know, there's going to be more, and, and that's that's sort of how I want to finish things out here. Is that like for every and, and not that I had any problem with like the Night Fae uh, Covenant campaign. The I thought it was very well done. I liked the story beats to it. I just felt that it was incomplete. And not not in a bad way. It's just that there's more story to tell because there's more expansion to tell. It reminded me of Legion. The very, yeah. when you first get to the the end of the first patch with that with that storyline. Yeah, and and sort of how the Order Hall campaign took time to advance about that as well, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it feels a lot like that, and that's not a bad thing. We've compared we've compared the Covenant campaigns to the Order Hall campaigns as a good thing. Um, some Order Hall campaigns were better than others just because there were so dang many storylines to follow. But with the Covenants only having four Covenants, they can focus their efforts more, right? And so I think we're going to see more. I think there's going to be more story to tell. And I think that, like, it'll evolve. Like, when you get your achievement, it is, like, you know, Night Fae campaign, Covenant campaign complete. Or, you know, Kyrian Covenant campaign complete. I think that's going to change. I think it's going to be Covenant Campaign Part 2 or Covenant Campaign Part 3 as the expansion moves forward and more content is released. And that's a we'll good see. thing. We'll see, but that definitely does feel like something they're going to be. And I'm definitely looking forward to it because I want to see what actually happens in these zones. I want to see their story unfold to a degree. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, so if you have some thoughts about how the campaigns unfolded, if you've played through them, uh, let us know. I'd love to hear your thoughts and opinions on it. As long as they're constructive, don't be mean. 
but yeah, let us know. Um, and we didn't get to any questions this week. Um, and that's perfectly fine. If you do have questions for the show, though, please feel free to send them into us. We will look at them. You can send them to one of our uh, Discord channels. We do have one set aside specifically for patrons. We do have one for non-patrons uh, for just basically Q questions. We will look there for podcast questions as well. If Discord isn't your thing, you can go ahead and send them to us via email at podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Uh, I, we will fight over ones that are ambiguous, but just let us know which show it's for. Uh, and then we'll talk about the other camp, the other Covenant campaigns. We'll probably do a series of these. So probably the next several weeks will be us talking about these campaigns. Uh, so hopefully that's something you'll be interested in and join us and give us your opinions on uh, your experience with the Covenant campaigns. But Blizzard Watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzardwatch. Your continued support means this podcast lighting community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, a better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the queue, and an ads-free site experience. And with that, folks, thank you very much. And we'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.